Hey, guys, we're going to get started. Keith is out of town today. Uh, apparently, he's made it to his destination, uh, we're, we're hoping at least. <laughs> but um, so Keith asked me to introduce our speaker today because um, he is a friend of mine. And so uh, please uh, uh, join me in welcoming Ricardo Quinones. Ricardo is a uh, faculty member at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's uh, currently the section chief of pediatric hospital medicine at Children's Hospital of San Antonio. Uh, he and I um, are fellow Texans, and so we've been friends for a long time. Uh, he's also the, um, the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on hospital medicine, and um, that's a fairly large and active section within the AAP. There are, what, more than 1,000 members? Yeah, we're like the second largest uh, section. And so Ricardo's been very active nationally um, with the AAP and with the section. And one of the things that hospitalists are, are very concerned with is the issue of, uh, of overuse and overdiagnosis, something that uh, uh, resonates at, at Dartmouth. And so uh, I asked Ricardo to come and talk about this topic. And also, he was the head of the pediatric um, arm of the Choosing Wisely movement for the Society of Hospital Medicine. So he's going to tell us a little bit about that today. So please welcome uh, my friend, Ricardo Quinones. Thank you, Sean. Um, everybody hear me okay? Okay, so thank you very much for inviting me to give this talk. I mean, I'm especially honored to come give this talk at <coughs> Dartmouth um, since, you know, I asked Sean when she first invited me, am I going to be preaching to the choir here since you guys, of course, gave the world the Dartmouth Atlas, which showed all that variation in care, uh, which is probably responsible for a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about today. So, and by the way, congratulations on the pediatric Dartmouth Atlas, it's a great achievement. I saw that you guys limited to New England for now. You have your work cut out for you when you get to Texas, so. <laughs> All right, so why don't we get started? Uh, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Uh, so the objectives really would be to, the main objective is really to highlight the issue of overuse. In medicine in general, but pediatric, we'll have some pediatric specific examples. Uh, we'll discuss some of the campaigns that have been designed to sort of bring this issue to the mainstream, highlighting, of course, choosing wisely, which is where I participated and Sean participated in. Uh, and then we'll explore possible ways to combat overuse or to highlight overuse in our daily life as physicians. By the way, I have to say I'm impressed. I know I'm at New Hampshire when I see this many faces in round rounds on such a snowy day. Uh, certainly, if we were in Texas or in San Antonio, half the population would die. <laughs> we would definitely not be having grand rounds today. So, very impressed. So, I, I know that acknowledgments are usually done at the end, but I want to acknowledge Alan Schroeder right now because um, he and I are collaborators uh, along with Sean in this issue, and uh, he gives this talk in several places as well as I do. And, uh, and we exchange slides. So if you're a pediatric hospitalist and you went to the New Orleans conference recently, a lot of these slides are going to be familiar to you. Uh, so speaking of Alan, one of the things that he uh, and Tom Newman brought to this issue was an opinion piece published in Pediatrics in 2011, which basically the basic premise of the argument was perhaps the reason why uh, safety uh, and, and the culture of safety has not changed much since the Institute of Medicine report is because for years we've been telling people what to do about patient safety, 
but very little of the conversation has been dedicated to what we could be safely doing less of for patient safety. I'll just give you some quotes from the article. But I, this is one of the things that if you, have, if, you're, if you teach residents, if you teach medical students, you should really have them read. Um, and the, Alan said, in addition to asking what more we can do to reduce harm, we should also be asking how we can safely do less to reduce harm. And often the best way to prevent avoidable harm from medical interventions is to avoid the interventions in the first place. Even well-intended and safely delivered health care can cause harm. And of course, errors of commission should be seen just as important as errors of omission. Uh, errors of omission are usually the ones that get a lot of press, but errors of commission can be just as bad. And we'll see some examples of that. So Don Berwick uh, last year uh, said that about 20% of US healthcare expenditure is due to waste and overtreatment and thus overdiagnosis is he defined it as care rooted in unwanted habits, supply driven behaviors, which you here at Dartmouth know a lot about, and ignoring science, basically. And it's probably responsible for about $226 billion a year. So, a lot of you have seen these slides, nothing new to you, but it, it's always good to know where we're coming from and why this is important. Uh, healthcare expenditure in the US is almost twice that of other country, of other industrialized countries, certainly over, uh, just about twice of the average. Uh, here's just one example, number of MRI units per million persons in 2006. Uh, as you can see, the US has almost twice as much as the next one down on the list. And really, MRIs is one of these things where it's been, it's overuse has been highlighted. And really, the, the sports medicine doctors have highlighted this. And I call that this extreme MRI because it's an extremity MRI where we're really seeing these. Uh, so for example, this study that looked at 101 patients referred for shoulder pain so that there was no difference in outcomes uh, when you got an MRI or you didn't get an MRI. And they followed patients up to a year or more. And so that they really weren't any differences in the treatment or outcomes, whether you got an MRI or not. And in this study where they, and, and of course that was for non-traumatic pain, but this study actually included patients with trauma or just with ankle pain. Uh, this were 201 patients and a previsit MRI, which most of them got, you know, an MRI before they showed up to the physician, um, only it was helpful in only about 6% of cases. So, and what do we get for all the spending? Again, things that you've seen before, not much. Um, in most indicators, the US doesn't rank very highly compared to other industrialized nations. Here's infant mortality. We're right next to the Slovak Republic in Chile. And of course, that's nothing to say, nothing bad to say about the Slovak Republic or Chile, but they spend a lot less than we do to achieve the same outcomes. So cost, of course, makes it important. But be, what we talked about, mistakes of un unanticipated harm occur frequently. And really, we haven't done much since the <laughs> Institute of Medicine report to improve patient safety. And again, some of us are making the argument that perhaps it's because we should be doing a lot less. So why does it happen? And I think it's important. So availability or supply sensitive care, which you guys know all about, it's an important cost. Of course, the cartoon there says, first, we're going to run some tests to pay off the machine. Uh, and you know that's funny, but it's it actually clearly happens. Before, you know, the day that I added this cartoon to my talk, I was also involved at a, uh, in a meeting for infection control where our pathologist was telling us all about the new PCR machine that we got to run this 
huge viral panel that we could have turned around in, in very, very quickly. And what his biggest message to us was, you really should get this test because we need to pay off the machine. That's really what he was saying. Um, and of course, I was in the back raising my hands, wanted to talk about what the evidence for that would be. Um, overdiagnosis, uh, we'll talk a little bit about overdiagnosis. Fear of litigation, most surveys that have looked at overuse in general have, look, have seen that fear of litigation is probably one of the number one drivers for doctors. And of course, the system of compensation, even though Medicare has gone to a DRG system, a lot of public, uh, private payers still pay fee-for-service fee uh, payment. And so uh, the, the way we're compensated sometimes drives a lot of overuse. And of course, in pediatrics, parental demand cannot be ignored. Uh, and it's, it's a very important cause of overuse. Publication bias, we'll see some examples of that. And I think this is a very important one, the pressure from colleagues and their ends of ones. Who does not have a colleague who will tell you, well, you know, I did have that one patient where had I gotten the test, I wouldn't have missed it. And we, we've all been there. We've all missed diagnosis because we didn't get a test. And I think Sir William Osler really said it well when he said we're constantly misled by the ease which with our minds fall into the rut of one or two experiences. And so really, we need to take those ends of ones uh, in context of overall healthcare. And then of course, we direct to consumer advertisement doesn't help. Now, you've gotten the parents who will uh, come into your clinic and ask for a certain medication that they just saw on TV. Uh, and then an important cause, I think, is medical education, which I think is very biased towards things we should do, right? We're always telling students, residents, this is what you should do to make this patient better. And I think we spend very little time asking what we should not do. And um, now there's very innovative curriculums that are looking, uh, that are trying to incorporate cost of healthcare into medical education. But of course, their innovative curriculums are not widely spread. So here's an example of error of, of omission. You probably, being here in New England, saw this case. I mean, it was national news for certain. This was a child who was unfortunately uh, died in New York from overwhelming sepsis that was missed during the first ER visit. And it received greater than 10 New York Times articles. But here's two more children that died from an era of commission. They were killed by healthcare during a wisdom tooth extraction. Um, and this got really very little media coverage. Arguably just as bad. One was covered extensively, one was not. In fact, the case in New York may actually lead to legislation in that state. And, um, but nothing, if anything, was said about the, the other two very unfortunate deaths. Some of you might be familiar with this map. You'll remember the um, epidural steroid injections that were contaminated with uh, fungal, uh, with, these, with this fungus that caused this horrible meningitis that was very difficult to treat, and it led to many deaths. Uh, what did the media cover, and what did the media talk about? The media talked about the irresponsible manufacturer of the medication about how terrible their conditions were. That was what received probably 90 plus percent of media coverage. Very little was said about the fact that the prescriptions for these epidural injections in many, many cases were not indicated. And in the majority of cases, there were second, third, or fourth line therapy uh, and should probably not have been prescribed. And I would ask you, so who is more responsible the manufacturer of this medication who may, who, 
who developed it in a very responsible way, or the physicians who prescribed this when it was not indicated, uh, not prescribing it would have also avoided the deaths, right? So let's look at an example of publication bias. So uh, Cochrane 2012 review of Tamiflu. Um, this is what they had to say. So it, it actually showed a, a modest positive effect of Tamiflu. But here's what the authors had to, had to say about it. The authors have been unable to obtain the full set of clinical study reports or obtain verification of data from the manufacturer. No substantial comments were made by the manufacturer in their protocol, the Cochrane Review, um, which had been publicly available. So what they were saying is, yes, there's a little bit of positive effect, but we really needed access to all this data that we couldn't get to really make a recommendation. I said, somebody did. Um, and uh, these guys published eight unpublished studies about Tamiflu that actually showed no difference in duration of symptoms and or complications. Somebody actually got a hold of these studies and published it. And I think here's the publication bias. It's a great study. When have you seen eight unpublished studies make it into the medical literature? This should have been in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's in a family practice journal, which I probably would be right to guess that most of us most of us don't read. So, um, and the profit motive is certainly one that you guys here, again, know very well about uh, supply-sensitive care. So if you have the MRI scan and you can offer an 850 full-body MRI scan in which your cancer will be detected very early, a lot of people are going to take you up on that. And, 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 and it's, if, if you read this story, and, and, and I think, again, one of these things everybody should, a uh, very well-known story, the cusk conundrum by Atul Wanda, where they compared two Texas towns, McAllen and El Paso, where uh, it showed that McAllen and El Paso spent double the, uh, McAllen spends double the amount in, in Medicare per patient than El Paso does. And what they saw was that in McAllen, there's very, the doctors owned the hospitals, they owned the labs where they would order all the tests and would hospitalize patients. Whereas in El Paso, it's more managed care. Even though the populations are extremely similar border towns, uh, and, and of course, um, uh, uh, Atul Wanda used the Dartmouth Atlas to identify these, these healthcare expenditures. So it's, it's kind of nice for me. I've, I've actually given this talk in El Paso. Um, now I'm here, so I just need to go to my calendar and I'll complete the triangle. Very nice <laughs> so um, overdiagnosis, let's talk a little bit about that. How do you define it? Um, so, it, I, you know, I define it as detection of conditions that will not cause symptoms or harm the patient. And it is certainly not false positives or incidental findings. And really, another way to, um, to identify it or, or to, um, to, 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 uh, to define it would be detection of conditions that will not, that are unlikely to help the patient and are likely more, uh, and are more likely to actually cause harm. And here's an example. So you can imagine back in 1980s when uh, studies started coming out that a new prosthetic, uh, that a new cancer marker was, we were able to detect it in the blood of patients. So a very non-invasive test could give us a lot of information about cancers. And so it led to a lot of early detection Screening was recommended by medical societies long before RCTs were available. And then what happened 30 years later? 
the U.S. Preventive Health Services recommendation came out, and they actually looked at two RCTs that were now available, one from Europe, one from the U.S., uh, that showed that there was really no reductions in mortality from PSA screening. Uh, and that you really, uh, in that detection ranges from zero to one prostate cancer death that was avoided for 1,000 men screened. But there was significant harm. Uh, but 80% uh, um, ended up in biopsy. Uh, the harm from cancer treatment, 90% went on to have surgery, despite the fact <coughs> that the outcomes from surgery hadn't been measured yet. Five in 1,000 will die within one year of surgery. Uh, and the majority, really the majority of patients who undergo some type of uh, surgery or treatment for this will have some type of morbidity associated with the treatment. And so really a rare recommendation by USPFT, which is a grade D recommendation, which basically says don't screen for PSA because the likelihood that you'll harm a patient is far greater than the fact that you'll help, you'll help them. Rare recommendation, again, that usually to have a grade D recommendation. In fact, the inventor of, or the discoverer of uh, PSA, this is what he had to say, and I'll let you read that for yourself. A great example in pediatrics of overdiagnosis is when we started screening kids in certain countries for neuroblastoma. And in screening in various countries was successful in early detection. But when we looked at the results, what we saw was that it didn't really increase the detection of late stage neuroblastoma, which is the one that's responsible for most of the mortality. And it really it was really those early on, those really stage one neuroblastoma is the one that really dramatically increased in detection. And really when we looked at overall mortality uh, in countries that screened, it was completely unchanged. So almost universally, uh, universally screening increased incidence of the cancer. Uh, nowhere did it decrease mortality. And in some countries, in fact, the intervention group had a higher mortality rate uh, and much higher incidence of morbidities. Whoops. Well, here's an ex well, so, sorry, I'll uh, skip that. So let's, um, let's look at ALT in pediatrics, start to look at some pediatric examples. Here's a, 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 uh, a slide showing significant variation in the length of stay of patients admitted for ALT in children's hospitals. Um, this was published in 2008 by Joel Teeter from Seattle. Uh, it looked at uh, variation not just in length of stay, but it looked at a variation in the, the, amount, of the, amount, of, the amount of tests that we get for ALT. Uh, and what, and, and here's, here's an example of some of the tests that are done for kids who are admitted with ALT. But what is the yield of that extensive diagnostic testing? In this study, 3,770 3, tests were ordered. Uh, only about 6% of them were, were contributory. But if you eliminate gastroesophageal reflux from the contributory test, it was really about 0.2%. And why eliminate GERD? Well, really because uh, studies trying to associate gastroesophageal reflux with apnea or ALT have not really yielded much. Um, this, in this study of infants that was placed on four-channel numerogram, looking at uh, ALT and its relationship to GERD, um, they saw that about 19% of, only about 19% of apneic events were related to GERD. And really, in 94% of the cases, 
apnea preceded the reflux episode. So really there's little, very little causality there. So what is being done about overuse and what are we, uh, how is this being brought to light? Well, many campaigns have looked at overuse in general. Uh, some very inventive pediatric ones, such as Image Wisely, um, have really brought this, um, the radiologists have really been very good about bringing this to our attention because of the potential harm from radiation. Uh, but there's even conferences. You guys had one here about overdiagnosis uh, in Dartmouth, and Sean and I went to, um, to the Lown Institute, avoiding avoidable care. Uh, so there's actual whole conferences. And, but really, mostly, it has been an issue that has been identified in adults, and very little has been done in pediatrics. There's whole publications dedicated to it in the adult world, Less is More series in JAMA. Um, and this is how uh, Choosing Wisely started. Uh, Howard Brody brought, uh, uh, put out a challenge to develop a top list, a top five list of things that are overdone um, in medicine. And, 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 that, and the ABIM, or the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, really took this and, and went with it. And they actually funded a uh, group called a Good Stewardship Group that was tasked with developing these top five lists. And they developed it initially in internal medicine, pediatrics, and family medicine. And this was really the beginning or where the Choosing Wisely campaign was born. They actually published their top five list uh, in annals of, uh, of uh, in, in archives. And here are the pediatric ones. I'll let you read those for your by, uh, on your own. But um, but if you can see a lot of primary care things. Notice, and we certainly noticed that the pediatric one was really the only one of all the lists that actually had in there one of, a thing to do rather than thing not to do, um, where it says use and health corticosteroids to control asthma, asthma appropriately. So even in a campaign where it was, they were supposed to tell you which things not to do, we just couldn't help telling people what to do. So um, here's choosing wisely, uh, where you know what gave this that what I just showed you is what gave birth to choosing wisely, and it's really a campaign aimed at um, medical societies encouraging doctors and patients to have conversations about things and uh, tests that are overdone and therapies that are overused. Sorry about this slide, it's kind of complicated. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, very small, but, but basically this is what we did in the, the Society of Hospital Medicine, the path that we took to develop the Choosing Wisely list. And uh, we intentionally wanted to have a, a robust way of developing the list, and we, usually, we developed a, 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 an initial list of 20 things um, that you see there in the diamond in the top, uh, at the top. We, we transmitted this list to several listservs that include pediatric hospitalists, and then we did we went through a Delphi process to wean down the list to the eventual fives that we recommended. And we used the UCLA RAND appropriateness method, which has been used in pediatrics before to develop quality indicators, because we wanted to use a published method for developing this list. And here's the public face of the campaign. That was, it was a, kind of a difficult thing to do because we really wanted to have an academic product come out of this, but there was a public face of the campaign because of the reason the campaign was created was to have conversations 
between physicians and their patients. And so this, they actually published our list and a public website before we actually got a chance to publish it in a peer-reviewed uh, uh, journal. But here, but we eventually did, and it was published last year. Um, and here's our list, and I'll take you briefly through it. Don't order test radiographs in patients with asthma or bronchiolitis. Don't use bronchodilators in children with bronchiolitis. Don't use systemic corticosteroids in children with lower respiratory tract infections. Don't treat GERD in infants with acid suppression therapy. And don't use continuous pulse oximetry routinely in children with acute respiratory illness, unless they're on supplemental oxygen. So this was our list. Uh, the don't there is the way that the choosing wisely wanted all their societies to present. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, it, it, it hits people uh, when they see it because it's telling you right off the bat, don't do this. Um, and of course, the public face of the campaign, underneath each recommendation, it has the evidence in a lay public language so that they can read what the evidence is. But let's go through some of that evidence. So. We know that bronchiolitis uh, has extremely low mortality rate, and really it has remained constant uh, throughout uh, the, the, the time that we've been monitoring mortality in bronchiolitis. But nevertheless, hospitalization has increased over 300% since 1980. Um, and what happened in the 80s? Why did we increase it so much? Well, routine pulse oximetry became really standard of care. Um, back, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. So it's not a <coughs> huge leap to think that maybe use of pulse oximetry is responsible for a lot of the uh, admissions that we see with bronchiolitis. Pulse oximetry has been known to be the main determinant of admission in some publications, uh, despite the fact that there's really no high quality evidence uh, showing that uh, outcomes by, in using versus not using pulse oximetry is better. Uh, and at least one ongoing trial um, that has been that has looked at using continuous versus intermittent pulse oximetry has shown that there's no difference in outcomes. So what about uh, GERDs and PPIs? Well, from 2000 to 2005, uh, the incidence of infants diagnosed with uh, GERD has tripled, 3.4 to 12.3 percent. Uh, the use of PPIs, in particular, doubled. And we know that from other studies that patients who are diagnosed with GER uh, uh, incur 1.8 times higher healthcare costs. And several studies, and including some systematic reviews, have really shown that there is really no difference in symptoms whether you use them or not. So really what we're trying to achieve, uh, we're not able to do so by using these medications. And uh, you know, I, I, I had the, the the slide where it showed harm back before I, I, I didn't, I, I neglected to move it, but I can tell you that there's, there is now some evidence of significant harm. Um, one, two, twice as high incidence of, of lower respiratory infections in kids who get this. Uh, in adults where the incidence of uh, C. diff colitis has, incre has, has been shown to be increasing when you use PPIs in adults, has now been shown in pediatrics in at least one study. So there's no difference in symptoms when you use these medications, but there may actually be harm. So let's go through bronchiolitis, because as you might have noticed, about 80% of our recommendations have to do with bronchiolitis. And if you're a hospitalist, you don't even <coughs> flinch about that, because you know that 
a large and significant portion of the patients that we see are uh, patients with bronchiolitis. And so it wasn't surprising to us that we came to a consensus uh, of recommending things not to do in kids with bronchiolitis. But really the other reason, I think, is because the history of bronchiolitis has really been one of us trying things and then somebody else showing it really doesn't work. Um, antivirals, we showed that it didn't work. Bronchodilators, Sean will tell you, it, it doesn't work. Uh, nasal decongestants, uh, Sean published an RCT showing that it didn't work. Chest percussion therapy, several studies showing that chest physiotherapy does not do anything and in fact may prolong symptoms in some studies. Steroids, for sure, at least two uh, main analysis showing that it has no effect in bronchiolitis. Now, what, at least one study showing that, you know, even simple things as deep suctioning may increase length of stay. And what about hypertonic saline, which has gotten a lot of talk in bronchiolitis and some promising studies in the international arena? Well, um, the, at least one U.S. study has already shown no effect on length of stay. In uh, a larger study out of uh, California, which may come out, I've heard patients say thing that it has no effect on length of stay. So that's probably going to go away. Um, and now our newest player, high-flow nasal cannula, which in some retrospective studies has shown a decrease in transfer to higher level of care in patients with bronchiolitis, hot off the presses and Cochrane review uh, in last month uh, uh, really concluded that there is no good uh, high-quality evidence to, um, to show that, that bronchiolitis, <laughs> kids with bronchiolitis are helped by high-flow nasal cannula. So, Again, the next player down the list, I suspect there'll be a next there someday. And really, despite this overwhelming evidence that these things do not help significant outcomes in children, Sean and collaborators showed that in many institutions, uh, up to 70% um, that in up to 70% of patients, it's still used. Chest x-rays in about 64% and steroids in about 30%. So, um, and so Shauna has probably, if she's ever given you a talk, she's probably shown you this quote because she loves this. Um, but since acute viral bronchiolitis is thus a self-limited disease of relatively good prognosis, the principle of primum non nocera should tend for frustrated anxiety to do something anything to relieve severe dyspnea. His energies, the patients, should not be frittered away by the annoyance of unnecessary pre-tile medications or procedures. Rest should be treasured. So this would be great if it was a quote, you know, very relevant today, now that we know these many things don't work in bronchiolitis. But actually, this is a quote from a 1965 paper by Dr. Wright. So even back then, before many of the things that we've tried were tried, they knew that they wouldn't work. Now, the AP has also put out a choosing wisely list. Here is one of them. You'll see that it looks very similar to that good stewardship list, except this, fact, this time we actually were able to achieve uh, telling, not telling people what to do. All of them are not what not to do, right? Cough and cold medications, antibiotics for pharyngitis, don't use CT scans for minor head trauma, or febrile seizures. And very important one, I thought, was the fact that they took on abdominal pain and they said, no, don't get routine CT scans for abdominal pain. 
And we have really made some progress in general pediatrics. And, and a lot of people, when I talk about this, uh, one of their arguments is, well, the reason this is not paid a lot of attention in pediatrics is because costs in pediatrics are certainly not near what they are in adult medicine. But I would propose to you that as you know, one of the reasons the AAP has chosen epigenetics as one of the things they're focusing on is because this idea that things other than genetics control the way that the way we are um, we we develop and become adults, and so the influence of the environment has a lot to do with it, and so and 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 therefore we should focus on it because what happens to kids when they're kids is going to be determining what happens to them as adults, and so I would say the same thing applies to this talk. To, to this issue is that uh, if we're good stewards of resources and don't do unnecessary things to kids, then this may influence the way we see them as adults. So I would say, that, and, 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 and again, in pediatrics, it, it's, it's a good thing to look at because it's also an emotional argument. And we have made some progress. Uh, AAP guidelines have, uh, telling us, have told us to use less aggressive approach to imaging as after first, first febrile UTI. Uh, 30, 24 versus 36-hour versus 48-hour hospitalization for fever and neonates. Uh, certainly, antibiotics for osteomyelitis going from IV to oral. Some publications showing that that's a good thing to do. Narrower spectrum antibiotics for pneumonia, according to the to the 2011 guidelines. And the you know more you know like bronchiolitis is one of these guidelines, very rare guidelines, where it's actually what I would call a negative guideline. Most of the bronchiolitis guideline uh, from the AP tells us what not to do, not what to do. And knowing the chair of the committee of the next one, I suspect it'll be even more negative. <coughs> and by the way, the AAP just signed on to develop ALTE guidelines. And I suspect that guideline is probably going to be also what I, a, a sort of negative guideline or things to avoid rather than things to do. But there's fairly a lot of, there's still a lot of things I think we can do. Uh, comparative effectiveness research is going to be one of those things that we can really use to show that all therapies are just as good as new therapies. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, this, this FIS database, which has been used extensively for this, uh, will probably become even better when FIS Plus, which will actually include things like lab results uh, and diagnostic imaging results, are actually included in the FIS database. But really, I think it requires a change in attitude and the way we speak to learners and the way we deal with this on a daily basis. And so, you know, instead of saying if we're drawing a blood culture, or, or if we're drawing blood, might as well throw in a blood culture, what we should be thinking is the probability of a bacterial bloodstream infection is so low that the risk of harm from hospitalization outweighs the risk of not getting a blood culture. And here's an email uh, a friend of mine got uh, from her lab that said, in order to conserve our blood culture bottle stock, we are asking providers uh, to order and or draw blood cultures only when necessary good for good patient care. <laughs> now, is that really an email that we need to get? I mean, do we really need people to tell us to only get blood cultures when it's in good patient care? Well, yes, we do. And because the labs, that the lab people know that we get blood cultures all the time just because we happen to have blood available. So they do need to send us these reminders, especially if you're running out of blood cultures. <laughs> Uh, bottle. 
So instead of to be safe, let's just watch him another night, we really should be saying to be safe, let's take out his high and send him home. <laughs> and instead of zebras, we should remember that most of the patients are really horses. Um, and, but I think we, we, it is important that we teach learners that we should think broadly. That's OK. It's OK to have a wide, extensive <coughs> differential diagnosis. But we should act narrowly, only test for B when A is negative, et cetera. Oops. And really, we need to start thinking about that there are really no unquestionable practices, that the standard of care of today it's, will not necessarily be the standard of care of tomorrow. And the standard of care is, fluctuates constantly. Um, so this study uh, that looked at the publications of an esteemed publication, which they didn't tell you which one it was, but I think it's published here in New England, um, <laughs> looked at 100 and analyzed 146. Um, sorry, it, uh, it, it analyzed articles from 2001 to 2011, and it looked at articles that tested established therapies versus new ones, uh, and really those articles which were testing the standard of care. Of 363 articles which were tested, the standard of care was reversed in 146 of them, 40.2%, and only 38% of them completely reaffirmed it. So it is true that the standard of care changes constantly. And so there are no sacred cows. So speaking of sacred cows, here's one that I really think should have gotten a lot more present. The Society of General Internal Medicine said, don't perform routine general health checks for asymptomatic adults. Now think about what these guys are saying, that, that this is general internal medicine society, the people that actually see these patients, telling us that routine physical exams have not been shown to, to increase to better outcomes in adults. And in fact, some indications that it may lead to overdiagnosis, overtesting of things that we didn't really need to know. And so they're saying that the routine physical exam is not evidence-based, and it may actually lead to bad outcomes. And I think it's because it's one of these things where if you put a healthy patient in front of a doctor, bad things may happen. <laughs> so now I'm going to go through some of what I think are sacred cows in pediatrics that we should question. Um, I'm a little comfortable talking about this because some of these things are really sacred, so, but we'll still talk about them. Fever treatment. Um, you know, we, I think we still teach uh, residents, certainly residents at my institution, the, whenever they get a phone call from the nurse that a patient has a fever, their first question out of the mouth is, have you given them Tylenol yet? Uh, whereas the first question should be, or at least the first question they should formulate is, what, what's the cause of the fever? Now, not only is there, are there studies that have shown that treating fever may prolong duration of some illnesses, I think there's starting to be really a robust amount of evidence showing that it is not harmless to treat fever. Uh, and the association between things like acetaminophen and asthma and allergies, really, there's, there's a lot of evidence that's starting to come out to really support the association between the two. Here's just one published in pediatrics. All right, so let's talk about exclusive breastfeeding. Now, I think breastfeeding is absolutely the right thing to do for kids. But we do have to remember that the evidence that we use to push for exclusive breastfeeding is based on a lot of observational studies. Um, and 
that there is evidence that that published evidence that using limited amounts of formula in which it is very highly controlled may actually increase the um, the, the 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 maintenance of exclusive breastfeeding uh, at three months of age. So in this study, they looked at this and they saw that those in which a, a small amount of formula was highly controlled versus those that were pushed just for exclusive breastfeeding, it was actually more retention of breastfeeding at three months. Um, and even the duration that we recommend for exclusive breastfeeding is really not evidence-based, and the British have really looked at this and showing some publications that actually may be harmful, uh, increased incidence of allergy and, um, and some other things. And, so, and here's another sacred cow, influenza vaccination. Think about the resources that we mobilize for influenza vaccination on a yearly basis in this country. And here's the latest um, Cochrane on it, published in August of 2012. Uh, they looked at 75 studies, 300,000 observations, 17 randomized control studies, and 19 cohort studies. And really, I'm going to read this to you because it's really interesting. The review includes trials funded by industry, an earlier systematic review of 274 <coughs> influenza vaccine studies published up to 2007. Industry-funded studies were published in more prestigious journals and cited more than other studies independently from methodological quality. Studies funded from public sources are significantly less likely to be reported. The review showed that reliable evidence of influenza vaccination is thin, but there is evidence of widespread manipulation of conclusions and spurious notoriety of the studies. Now, this was Cochrane. And just in case we're going to accuse me of being a vaccine denier, uh, here's Alex Langemer, who's the chief, who was at some point the chief epidemiologist of the CDC, and Dunn Henderson, which was the chair of the WHO's Global Smallpox Eradication, saying that there's really very little evidence that the, vac that the flu vaccine prevents illness or makes any difference in outcomes. And I think that's the reason why this has not been universally recommended in not a lot of European countries. Now, I get a vaccine every year. I tell my patients to get a vaccine every year. Uh, but I think we really need to start looking at some of these things. Uh, certainly, certainly, we can argue the merits of one vaccine without arguing the merits of vaccines in general. So what do we need to do? I think we really need to connect, connect physicians to the cost of healthcare. I think some people are already doing that by publishing price lists or including these issues in medical education. De disconnect reimbursement from utilization. And really, really talk about safely doing less in everything we do on a daily basis. We need to remind our patients and our trainees that unanticipated harms do occur even from well-intended medical care. And again, constantly reevaluate what we think of as the standard of care. And we really need to redefine conservative. Like, it's really crazy that medicine is the only place in the world where conservative means, conservative means the exact opposite of what it means in politics, right? Uh, in politics, conservative means you're fiscally conservative. Uh, in medicine, conservative means you really want to get a lot many more tests. So, and, and really, uncertainties are okay. I think it, we need to teach our learners that we don't always need to find a diagnosis. We don't always need to find the answer. That really are the, we're doctors to help patients. Um, and I think another good William Osler uh, quote is that no human being is constituted to know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
And even the best of men must be content with fragments, with partial glimpses, never the, never the full fruition. And we really need better outcomes, right? One of the outcomes that we measure in a hospital, we're mandated to measure these outcomes is patient satisfaction. Here's one publication that actually showed that, in, in the adult world, that actually showed that those institutions which had a higher patient satisfaction actually had higher mortality and worse outcomes. So we're actually killing them, loving them to death uh, in these institutions. So um, we, we really need to redefine research and clinical practice. If you think about it, IRB policies uh, really uh, encourage the use of unproven clinical therapies. You really need to uh, read Susan Wooden's uh, opinion piece in Pediatrics in October of 2013, which they really argue that we, the IRBs <coughs> demand sometimes that we use standards of care that have really been unproven. They use, uh, they use resuscitation in infants with oxygen as one of them, that it's really difficult to get IRBs to approve studies looking at resuscitating infants without oxygen because for some reason resuscitating with oxygen has been the standard of care for many years despite the fact that there's no there's absolutely no evidence showing that that should be the standard of care but it has simply become the standard of care so now we're measured against things that have not been really proven uh, and I think we really need to trust clinical judgment more. We really don't need tests to confirm what we already know. We don't need to get a test to tell this guy that he has an arrow through his head. Uh, and it's really not a new issue. Uh, I was very proud when I found this study and showed it to my collaborators back in, uh, what is it, 1972. Uh, somebody in pediatrics was talking about this stuff. Uh, really great quotes from there. It is, uh, first of all, really great, uh, great, uh, great title. Uh, the Avoiding Pediatric Pathogenesis in the Management of Acute Minor Illnesses. And uh, some great quotes from it. He, the pediatrician, may pray uh, to, may, may be prey to the rigidity of judgment which fails to appreciate the variation of normal. <laughs> that's a great quote because there is a variation of normal, right? Normal is not, it's, it's, it's a bell curve. And, and, and some, of, some, some of that normal is gonna be right at the edge of abnormality, but we really need to appreciate that sometimes what we're treating as illness is really just an extreme variation of normal. Extensive or repeated diagnostic measures may reinforce the importance of the symptom in the mind of the patient and child, making the physician a pathogenic agent. So we, we can be pathogenic agents. So I was very proud that I found this publication. And then one of my collaborators sent me this. This is a treatise from Self-Limited Illnesses by Dr. Big, uh, by, um, doc, Dr. Bigelow, published back in 1835. And besides the fact that uh, he taught us that we should not use uh, mercury in, uh, for the common cold, uh, there's really some very insightful things in this uh, treatise. And, and I'm going to give you a quote from it that I really took to heart. And he said that, but if we can accomplish comparatively little in the actual direction of disease, the necessity becomes the more imperative that we should do little wisely and well. So really, here's where the Choosing Wisely campaign was really born. And what he was really saying was this, right? That's what he was really saying. Is, and I think, you know, um, I have a friend who, who's a collaborator in this issue with me who's, said, who's, who's known to be a contrarian uh, and likes to take the contrarian argument all the time. So when this started being talked about more and more, 
Uh, she actually said, well, you know, I'm no longer interested in this because now it's mainstream. Um, <laughs> but I really think it's not. It, we don't talk about it enough. Um, and really, I think to make it more popular, we really need, go, need to go back to basics and to really teach our trainees that as doctors, our number one contract with patients is not to diagnose disease, it's not to cure disease, but really our number one, that is implicit in what we do, but really our number one contract with patients is to first do no harm. All right, here I'll leave you with another William Osler quote. One of the first duties of the physician is to educate the masses, not to take medicine. All right, thank you very much. Yes. Um, I do worry about changing uh, policies at a bigger level when it comes to litigation. We work in critical care medicine, in, at which point you know your risk of being sued goes up significantly. Um, but that I find is a time when we we end up ordering extra tests because there yeah. is that fear that if you miss this rare thing, you'll be in the news. Right. Uh, you're right. Um, but if we really look at the evidence behind litigation, uh, if we really critically look at it, and you see that most litigation is not because we missed something, right? So I think we're being misled when we think that by doing things, we're less likely to get sued. Because actually, if you look at published studies, that's not actually the reason why most doctors get sued. It usually has to do with communication. Um, you know, some evidence showing that apologizing for mistakes uh, decreases litigation. So it's, it's really more communication, really very little evidence that not getting a test, not getting and uh, not using a treatment will lead to litigation. So I think it's just a misinterpretation of what may actually happen. Yes, sir. When I was in uh, medical school and training and most of my career, on both rounds and teaching conferences, we were exposed to an atmosphere where uh, a student or resident would present a case, usually the next morning, and get bombarded with questions about this test, that test, this diagnosis, that. And I think there, there has been, I, I hope this is changing, I'm not sure it is, in all segments, but uh, an atmosphere where it's almost like a military thing where we're drumming into the heads of the, the trainees a certain attitude where they, they've got to get every test so they can answer every single question the next day. Right. Yeah. I, I don't. I know what you're saying. I completely agree with what you're saying, and I spent most of the latter part of my career preaching exactly what you're saying here. But, but, for the most part, we still are training young people to be able to answer every question of the more senior person the next day. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, and and I think you exemplify what. Um, what I feel is, is it's the problem with this, which is the fact that, that it tends to be physicians in the latter part of their career that, that start getting interested in this. Um, and, 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 and I've given this talk in several venues, and usually uh, somebody like yourself who's interested in, in it will speak up and say, yes, now I've been, I've been looking at this 
in, in the last half of my career, and I think it's something very important. And it's because of that lack of teaching really right at the beginning. Uh, and I think medical education is really the way to tackle this and really to include a robust discussion of this issue from the beginning. Uh, but it, it, unless it's incorporated into formal curriculum, I don't think we're going to make much stride. So. Yeah, as a longtime IRB member and current chair, um, I, I speak up because in the setting where the scientific review is robust and done by people who are expert in the field, the IRB in general is very happy to accept that review and confine their comments to does the consent form adequately inform the patient as to what is actually being done and those issues where they actually have some expertise. But you in many places run into the setting where that scientific review hasn't been done well or has been very cursory. And then the boards are not being expert in this field, very reluctant to approve a major change in what they think is standard of care because you don't have the right people reviewing it. And I, I think that's a key that um, even at this in institution, we have some areas where the scientific review is excellent. And that makes the IRB's job very easy. But in the setting where that's limited to nil, then, then they are very conservative and they get in the way, quite frankly. No, yes, I think that you're right. Um, I mean, I wish I could review, send my IREs to you. Um, <laughs> but I, I, and, if, and, if, and, if, and I think if most IRBs had the attitude that you're having, we wouldn't have as many issues. But I think it is very important that we look at what um, that that opinion paper in pediatrics is that we're testing against <coughs> unproven standards of care and we're held, we're held against unproven standards of care. And so it does require some creative thinking by, our, by RRBs and some more critical thinking by RRBs. Uh, so I think you're right. Thanks, Ricardo. I really <coughs> appreciated your talk. <coughs> I wonder if there's any literature or any what you've come across in terms of um, the different silos of care, so in the ER versus being admitted versus transitioning to the outpatient. And I bring this up in the context of, as a hospitalist, we often um, disagree with our ER colleagues about how to manage things. And so we found actually they're giving more things like dexamethasone because they know we won't use <coughs> steroids when the kids are admitted. And obviously there needs to be a little better cross-talk and communication and things like that. Are, are there any campaigns or ways to try to get uh, doctors to talk more together as well? Well, I think the collaborative that Sean published was a good example of that. Um, uh, the, 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 the collaborative from bronchiolitis from the Valiant Inpatient Pediatric Clinic was a great example of getting hospitals to talk to their uh, ERs and to have shared baseline protocols. And, and they really, in some institutions, saw dramatic improvement in the use of non-evidence-based therapies. And so, it, but it takes those robust collaborators to be able to do so because you're right, we're very siloed in medicine, and what the and we're always, you know, the ice, we're always, you know, we're in the right in the middle. As in a hospital, I'm, I complain about the ICU and the ER because we're right in the middle of both. Well, um, <laughs> the ICU is always right. <laughs> Absolutely, because your kids are always sick, right? Um, right. So, so I, so I think it's it's it, you're right, um, but it does take these really robust, intentional collaboratives to be able to do so. It's interesting because the emergency medicine physicians, um, and I think really need to, need to listen to them, 
they were latecomers to the Choosing Wisely campaign. You know, everybody noticed that all these societies were putting out lists, and everybody was asking, where's the ER? You know, that's where a lot of tests are done. Um, and they were hesitant to do, to contribute because they felt very attacked. Uh, they felt a lot, a lot of the lists that were coming out and a lot of the indications that were coming out was other societies saying, uh, we're actually not responsible for these. Uh, we, we really think we shouldn't do this, but we're actually not the ones doing it. It's really the ER. So they really felt attacked by that campaign initially. Uh, and I think they were right. You know, uh, If you look at, even though I think the Choosing Wisely campaign is really good, if you look at some of the recommendations by some of the society, they're really meaningless. You know, you'll see some um, societies that should have recommended things that are really that they that they themselves do that would have been against their economic interests, like the general internal medicine recommendation, but they really didn't do so, and it took somebody else to recommend to to recommend it. Like for example, the urologist didn't say don't test for PSA. It took the family practice docs to say it, right? If anybody wants to read more about that, Nancy Borden, who's faculty here at uh, Family Practice, wrote a commentary in the New England Journal that's really excellent on yeah. the issues with, um, with, with you know, uh, re recommendations in the two Yes, sir. Uh, could you comment on the benefit of um, the regular physical examination of the healthy child? I dare you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Again, that, that, I think that's one of those sacred cows, right, that, uh, that, that we need to look at. Um, it's, it, there's already one society saying that there's no benefit in outcomes. I think it's different in pediatrics, but maybe not. You know, nobody has really extensively looked at it, and I think it, you bring up a very good point. And I didn't want to go there, but you did. <laughs> I have a presentation from a nurse practitioner from the University of New Hampshire on that very issue, and it's fascinating. Um, I treat it like dynamite, but uh, I don't let anyone know. I never talk about it. I never show it. <laughs> but it's uh, it's obviously got European and Canadian evidence. You know, so I think we ran over a little bit. Thank you.